Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is in any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I, know how, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would be near to us this morning, that you would... Uh, draw our hearts to you, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear from your word, and that you would open our hearts to receive it. I pray that you would be with me, that you give me faith and fill me with your Holy Spirit and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long ago, I read a little piece on parenting by a pastor named Peter Jones, and it was a pretty boring little piece, said some normal parenty things in it. And uh, one of the normal things he said was, if you teach your child to obey because you want to control him, then you're setting about it all wrong. Which, again, is sort of an obvious duh thing to say, right? If you teach your child to obey because you want to control him, you're setting about it all wrong. Seems obvious, but uh, at the time it was timely for me uh, for one reason or another, most likely because I had just gotten done with some selfish discipline of my kids and was feeling the pain of that, was feeling guilty over it. So, and it got me thinking about how much of my fatherhood is really about control. How much of my desire to keep the kids from, say, playing outside is because I don't want them under the influence of neighbor kids, and I don't want to be out there with them holding their hands. How much of my discipline is just a result of my frustration with the fact that things aren't going the way I want them to go. And that got me thinking about the nature of control. Why is it that we want to control so much of our lives? And I realized that the less self-control you have, the more you need to control everything and everyone else around you. Generally speaking, you have two or three options for how to deal with your emotions, with your anxieties, with your fears, with your insecurities, with your anger, with your jealousy. You can bottle them up and you can try to control them stoic style. 
You can try to be a robot and make it so that nothing touches you, so that you feel nothing. You build up your walls high enough around you to ensure that you feel nothing. Until the lid blows off, you have to keep everything around you manageable because you think you're a person with self-control. Until God gives you a toddler you can't control. And then you freak out and you lose it. And you wonder what's wrong with you because your boxes are no longer neat and tidy and well sealed. Or, instead of trying to keep your emotions neat and tidy and well sealed, you can let them run wild and free and let them control you. And you just be carried about by your feelings here and there and let them dominate you and dominate every interaction that you have with other people so that your whole life is ordered around getting what you want or what you need from everyone else. Affirmation over here, security over there, validation over here, emotional support over there. So you're not only an emotional basket case, but you're also an emotional leech. You have to control your children. You have to control your husband. You have to control your wife. You have to control their opinion of you. You have to control your situation at work or your boss. And if you can't control your boss, you have to be your own boss. Or, failing those two options, you can just decide to medicate it all away. Alcohol is uh, strong enough for most people. One internet personality put it recently, I don't use alcohol to self-medicate. I just use it to make things better and make the pain go away. (laughs) But if that's not strong enough, if alcohol is not strong enough, there are prescriptions that most doctors will fill for you. And of course, none of those methods of dealing with our emotions, dealing with our anxiety, dealing with our anger, our frustrations, our impatience, whatever, None of those are mutually exclusive. In fact, they all work sort of hand in hand, right? But we all can agree that we tend in one direction or another, right? You're tempted in one direction or another. And then there's what the Bible says to do, which is altogether different. So I want to talk this morning about anxiety and fear and contentment. And more than all that, I want to talk about the peace of God. How many of you this morning would describe yourself as a content person? How many of you would describe yourself as being as content as you'd like to be, or as content as you can be? There we go. There were a couple hands that went up the first time, but I think I got everybody with the second pass. There's a, a beautiful and sweet little thing in this passage. And it's a word that's repeated twice, and it's why I went all the way down to verse 13, just to get this word in. And it's the word learned. I have learned, says the Apostle Paul, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment is something that can be learned by anyone. In fact, it must be learned. The only way to become a content person is to learn contentment. There's no switch to flip. There's no magic button. Being content is largely a process. And it's something we learn to do largely as we walk through trials, as we suffer. 
And as we walk through trials and suffer, the Lord Jesus weans us from our cares and hopes, from our worldly treasures, from the things we depend on to get through this life, so that he alone is our treasure, and with him we're satisfied, no matter what our circumstances are. It wasn't any different for the Apostle Paul himself. You, you remember the Apostle Paul, right? Think of his humiliation. Think of what Jesus made him walk through. You remember his story? Before he met Jesus, he was a man of stature. He was well-educated. He was an intellectual Jewish Pharisee. And he was from good stock. He was from good people. And yet, Jesus reduced him to a life of ministering among Gentiles. Working with slaves. Getting beaten within an inch of his life and spending half of his time in prison. He wrote this letter from prison. God didn't magically flip a switch in Paul's heart. God taught him contentment, and it was a painful process, but he was taught and he learned. So what what is contentment? What is it? What is contentment? Contentment is what you have when your peace and your happiness in life doesn't depend on your circumstances. It doesn't depend on what's going on around you. It doesn't depend on other people. Contentment is not being totally indifferent to our circumstances. Content Christians are not Stoics. We're not Buddhists. We feel what happens to us. And difficult things are happening to us all the time. When the Bible commands us to be content, the Bible is not commanding us to live in denial about what's going on within us or outside of us. It's not commanding us to turn our hearts into stone so that we don't feel anything. Our joy and our contentment as Christians is not a manufactured one. It's a joy that can look at all of the sorrows that we face in this world and say, those sorrows are real and they hurt. Yet I will rejoice. That's why contentment is hard. It's a difficult thing to be humbled and laid low. It's a difficult thing to face trials and sorrows. It's a difficult thing to be laid low like the Apostle Paul was. It's difficult to be brought as low as some of you have been brought. And to be brought that low and to not become bitter. It's a very difficult thing to suffer and to suffer need and to not worry or be anxious. It's a very difficult thing to be mocked and scorned by family members, friends, co-workers, and classmates for your faith in Christ and yet to remain in the same contented spirit. On the other hand, it's very difficult for things to go well. For th- it's very difficult to abound, as he puts it, and, and not forget God. And I'd say for many of us, it's even more difficult. It's difficult when things are going well to keep yourself independent of the good things that are going well. To keep yourself trusting in God and looking to God instead of riding the wave of good things far away from actual peace and joy and contentment. Far away from any thought of God. There are dangers on every side and contentment is a hard thing. In fact, it is an impossible thing apart from the strength that comes from Jesus. So how do we learn contentment? How do we know the peace of God? 
I think this passage holds something of the key for us. So let's start by going through it verse by verse, beginning in verse 4. First, the command to rejoice. Over and over in this letter and in all of Scripture, we're commanded to rejoice. In fact, we're commanded to rejoice so many times that our eyes tend to glaze over and we just ignore the command, or at least I do. It's a verse we think for not serious Christians to use. Probably they quote it all the time at Joel Osteen's church, and that's gross. Why would we do that? Forget that command that happened to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. But who is that command for? Who's, who's the command for? Why do you think that command is there in the first place? And why do you think it's all over Scripture? Why is rejoicing commanded all the time? Do you, com- <laughs> do you command happy people to rejoice? I spent yesterday afternoon at baseball practice and then at a baseball or a birthday party for one of the kids on the team. Did anybody have to tell any of those kids to be happy? Peter, did anybody have to tell anybody to be happy at that birthday party? How about at baseball practice? Yes. <laughs> it's true. It is true. At baseball practice, there are always a couple kids that are a little down on themselves for messing up for not being as good as uh, they think they are or they want to be. And I have to be told to smile and have fun and be reminded that it's a game, right? It's baseball. If you're not smiling, it's not baseball because baseball is fun. But the birthday party, Peter, the birthday party, anybody have to be told to have a good time, to be happy, to have fun? No, no. You don't, you don't come in happy people to be happy, right? You don't command happy people to rejoice. Who do you command to rejoice? People who are tempted to be sad, miserable, afflicted, groaning, complaining people. That's who you command to to rejoice. People who have cause or think they have cause to be upset or sad or anxious. Those are the people you command to rejoice, right? Right? As suffering and distress were real concerns for the church at Philippi, they, if anybody, had cause to be sad, to be anxious. They were afflicted. They were in the midst of persecution, real persecution, persecution like we haven't seen. That's why they needed to be encouraged to bear it well and to be taught how to bear it with joy. They were tempted to groan. Our position here in this church, in this community, and in America is changing. And it's changing fast. We're beginning, just beginning, to feel many of the kinds of pressures that the church felt at Philippi. The church at Philippi needed to be told to rejoice. They needed to be told to stop lying about the gospel because the gospel's good news. It's happy news. A joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. They needed to be, they needed to face that reality. And so do we. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul was in a position to teach them how to rejoice in the midst of suffering. He was a man who knew suffering quite well. 
when we read passages like this that say rejoice, again I say rejoice, it's very easy for us to hear them as though they're trite and hollow platitudes. Something that somebody like Joel Osteen would say. What does he know about my suffering and pain? But the Apostle Paul was anything but that. He was a man who lived in the midst of constant sorrow, distress, and suffering. And as I said from the beginning, he was writing this letter from prison. So the central theme of this letter is how a Christian might have joy and peace that doesn't depend on the circumstances we find ourselves in. A faith that transcends our circumstances, real contentment. It's one thing to say we believe these things, and it's another thing altogether to hold fast to them, to stand, to stand on them in the midst of trial, in the midst of fire. It's another thing altogether to know the peace of God when our lives are turned upside down. There have been rapids we've all hit over the course of this past year. Some of them have been personal. Some of them have been literal rapids, because I see some of you smiling. Some of them have been personal. Some of them have been outside of us, right? Everything wasn't all placid on the outside. Things don't look that promising for the future. Tomorrow is Memorial Day and we celebrate it with gratitude. And for many of us, it will be a day of mourning, but not just a day of mourning for those who died fighting for our country, but a day of mourning for the country that they died for. What is your faith? Is it real? The world will know, and so will you, when suffering comes, when trials come. That's when it's tested. That's when your pretenses disappear. So rejoice. Get in the habit. It's a command, and God's commands aren't burdensome, and he teaches us how we can rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. How many of you are reading from the ESV this morning? Nobody. That's amazing. Okay, there's some. Thank you. <laughs> I, I often read first from the ESV. I first studied this passage in the ESV. And uh, in the ESV it says this, Let your reasonableness be known to all men. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. It's convenient, I think. Don't you want your reasonableness to be known to all men? It's a bad translation. I like the ESV a lot, but that's a bad translation. At the best, at the worst, it's a deceptive translation. I spent some time looking up that word because I wondered what in the world... What, what's meant, let your reasonableness be known to all men? Because I know what I think when somebody says, let your reasonableness be known to all men. And I had an idea that it wasn't what the Apostle Paul meant when he said it. Turns out this word has never, ever been translated as reasonableness, ever, anywhere. Anywhere, ever. Except in that one translation of the Bible, when it was used. Nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else ever. It's always translated as gentleness or graciousness. Problem, of course, is that when we read the word reasonableness, we imagine a posture, a posture that we would never find in Scripture. We never find from any godly man. 
The posture we would imagine, that I imagine, isn't one that is characterized by the Apostle Paul, who a couple verses up in Philippians was calling his opponents dogs and was calling their teaching the dung of dogs. Except he didn't say dung, he said a stronger word that I'm not allowed to say, but he was allowed to say in Scripture because I have to be more reasonable than him. Because you won't accept it if I'm as unreasonable as he is. Reasonable men, by our standards, don't make whips and chase people with them like Jesus did. Reasonable men, by our standards, don't say things that get their heads lopped off or get them sent to prison or cause riots. Reasonableness is a modern virtue. It's not a biblical one. If you spend your life avoiding the appearance of being unreasonable, you'll spend your life doing absolutely nothing of use to the people of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains this passage this way. Quote, he is not referring to what we may call a looseness, a flabbiness and lack of definition. These are the same people who are to stand fast in the Lord at all costs. They are not compromisers. They are not men and women who, because they believe nothing in particular themselves, can be indulgent with respect to every other person. No, they are to stand fast in the Lord. So we must get rid once and forever of the idea that this command means a kind of indifference, a vagueness, a nebulous attitude towards truth and life and everything else. The kind of person who is all things to all men in a wrong and unworthy sense. A man who is always ready to compromise the truth for the sake of peace. So how are we to understand this command? I think it has a very close connection to what was said in chapter 1 verse 28 when the apostle told the church to not be frightened in anything when they were persecuted. One response to suffering and persecution is to be afraid. It's to fear and tremble and to cower and to hide your kids and to hide your wife and to go down into the basement or go into a bomb shelter and get a bunch of rice and beans and put up the walls, right? The other side of that is just to be angry and to be bitter and to be vengeful and to go out and get yours. And instead of getting rice and beans, you get bullets, right? But we're called to take all trials as from God in a gracious, gentle, level-headed way with equanimity, not with indifference, not passively, but with a gentle and gracious spirit. How do we do that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. We must remember that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. God is coming. And what will he do when he comes? Second Thessalonians 1 says this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's saying this to people who are afflicted, right? Are you afflicted? Remember, God is at hand. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming and he's coming with a sword and he's coming to avenge the wrongs that have been done to his bride and to comfort her with everlasting comfort. He's coming and he's coming to make all things right. And if you're found in him when he's come, he's, when he comes, he's coming, he is coming for you. And not only that, but he's present with us and near to us now by his Holy Spirit to comfort us in the midst of our trials and sufferings. God is near to those who suffer and who call on him. This is both sobering, it ought to be sobering, and encouraging, strengthening. The inability to stand firm with gentleness, with love, is a product of refusing to see that the Lord is near. God is in his heaven, and he is also near. The greatest enemy of patience, if you're an impatient person, the greatest enemy of contentment is forgetting that. When we forget that God is in heaven, we grab and we grasp and we try to get what's ours. We have to control everything and everyone around us, every circumstance of our lives, because we don't believe that God's in control and that he cares for us. The inability to trust God in the midst of life is the root of all our fears and all our anxieties. And here's the reality about our circumstances. Our circumstances always change. They never stay the same. Our lives are always moving. Things are always happening. But God never changes. God is sovereign over all our circumstances. He's in control. He's a good father. And he orchestrates all of the circumstances of our lives for his glory and for our good. Always, without exception, if we belong to him. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the way that we have to see things. Because if we think we're finally going to get control over our fears, over our anxieties, over our insecurities, over our anger, by controlling our circumstances, by trying to control everything out there, we are deceiving ourselves. The problem is never out there. It's never out there. The problem's always in here. I had a friend reach out to me this past week to talk about a young man in his church who's leaving the faith and he's leaving his family. He has a wife and five young kids. He's walking away. He's running. He was asking me what to say to him and I said a lot to him, but it, it might be fair to sum up most of what I was saying with this. Ask him where on earth he thinks he can run to escape from himself. Where does he think he can run to escape from himself? Where, where, where can he go? This young man, I don't remember how young, early in marriage with five small kids in the first like seven years of marriage or something like that. And he's just, he's done. Why is he done? What happened? What's going on in his heart and his mind? 
I'll tell you, he jumped into marriage precipitously, impetuously, impulsively, and the responsibilities started to stack up and pile up around him. And he felt buried. And he thought that he'd get out of it just as easily as he got into it. He thought it was the responsibility. He thought it was his wife and kids that were the problem. So he thinks, he, he, he thinks he's got to escape, but escape from what exactly? Escape from the same bondage to his own impulses that have, has ruled his whole life? Jump out of his vows the same way that he jumped in? And then what? Run from God's kind, merciful, and loving care and discipline for him by giving him responsibility? The problem's not out there. Not for him. The problem wasn't with his wife. The problem's not with your wife, and it's not with your husband, and it's not with your kids. The problem is with you. It's with you. It's always been with you. You are the problem. God is good. God is sovereign. God is in control. Not you. And that is a good thing. Because that means that every circumstance, every situation in our lives is a manifestation of God's love and care for us. Even when it doesn't feel that way. And that means we need to understand every circumstance and every situation of our lives, even and especially the most painful and difficult ones, as a gift from God for our good. Now, in the light of that reality, this is the command. Do not be anxious. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. Do not be nervous. Do not be troubled or worried by your circumstances. God is sovereign over them all, and he is near. Your summer job, your future, the fact that you're single, the debt that you're accumulating, the spiritual state of your children, the spiritual state of your children, Also, the spiritual state of your children. Be anxious for nothing. Well, there's a fine line between being anxious and responsible, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there's a difference. The difference is that responsible people can sleep at night having done what they could having been faithful. That's the difference. It's not being reckless. It's not being lazy. It's not being indifferent. It's trusting God. The difference between being anxious and being responsible is sound sleep at the end of the day because you've done what you can do. 
and you failed and God is merciful and he's in his heaven and things are in his hands, he's in control, you trust God. Notice that it doesn't stop, that sentence doesn't actually stop with stop being anxious. It keeps going. There's a remedy in this passage. There's real peace, a peace that transcends understanding, a peace that's supernatural, one that can only come from the living God, and that's what we need. We need something real, something true, something that's better than don't think about it or stop it. And that's what's promised here. How do you get that? That kind of peace, a peace that surpasses understanding. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. We don't shut down. We feel our needs, and they are many. They are too many for us. We're weak. But we don't bottle them up. And we don't let them run amok. We have somewhere to take them. We take them to our Heavenly Father because He cares for us, because He knows our needs and He loves us. The difference isn't that we don't have them or that we don't feel them, the difference is we have a place to take them. We have somewhere to turn. This is why the Psalms are so important, because what they teach us over and over again is how to bring our hearts before God, no matter what their condition is. If we would read and pray the Psalms, we'd find example after example of the psalmists bringing their fears and their anxieties and every bit of emotional baggage they have before the throne of God. It's what they do. They don't bottle it up and they don't let it run wild and they don't medicate it away. They bring it to God. The Holy Spirit teaches us here in this passage how to make our requests known to God in the midst of suffering and anxiety. He gives us three basic instructions. The first is to actually pray. Here's an idea. Actually pray. Actually come into God's presence. Christian prayer is not empty prayer. We don't offer our prayers to the ceiling. We don't offer our prayers to fate. We offer our prayers to the living God. We must humble our hearts before him. The access to God that Jesus purchased for us is, the, is real. It's the access of real sons to a real father, to the true father. We have the Holy Spirit within us opening our eyes, causing us to see and feel and know God's presence. When we have humbled ourselves before God, then and only then are we in a condition to make supplications. Because then and only then is our will subjected to his. You understand? We have to be humble before God. Often in the midst of temptation and trial, we will cry out to God, but we won't cry out humbly. We'll cry out bitterly. 
with our demands and our rights. But that is not how we approach God. That's not how anyone approaches God and is received. God only receives those who come to him humbly and with thankfulness. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Gratitude is the proper response of a heart that's truly dealt with God and been humbled before him. When we come to make our petitions to God, we can only come as worshipers. There's no other way to come but as a worshiper. And when we come as worshipers, we come to a father who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. When we come to God in that way, he forgives our sins, he pardons our iniquities, he hears us. And the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. Not because God relieves or changes our circumstances, though he might, but because he's transformed us. Gratitude, thankfulness, is the enemy of discontentment. You can't be both at the same time. And humility is the enemy of ingratitude. Gratitude is the enemy of discontentment and humility is the enemy of ingratitude. When we humble ourselves before God, we realize he doesn't owe us anything. We don't deserve anything from him. And our eyes are taken off ourselves and our needs and our wants and all that we think and feel that we need, everything that keeps us up in knots. And our focus is put on God who has provided all things for us in Christ. And that's what happens when we come into God's presence and that's how our anxiety is cut off at the root. When you make your request known to God, God says he will do something. He will give you a supernatural peace that overcomes your anxiety and guards your hearts and your minds. It's not a peace that can be described or explained. It says it surpasses all understanding or comprehension. It's only something that can be known by those who have been born of God and belong to him. But it's real. It's not prayer makes me feel better. And it's not a good distraction and it's not a corresponding thing to Buddhist meditation. It's something altogether different. It's the work of God. There's a little phrase in there that I want to point out before we move on. And it's in everything. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God in everything. There is nothing too small to bring to God. There's no bit of anxiety or worry that he's above speaking to. In fact, failure to bring even the smallest care to God is, is just not Christian. Don't feel guilty about Christian suffering in the Middle East when you have, when you, your toenail gets infected. <laughs> bring everything to God because he cares for you. He sees, he hears. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, 
If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. How much of your life is spent thinking about your fears, thinking about the the cares of this world, thinking about all of the things that can go wrong. Here we're being called to meditate on the things of God, things that pertain to the gospel, the things that we've learned and received from the apostle Paul. And we know that because he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's That's his explanation of what he's talking about. It's poetic, sure, but it's not the poetry of the culture snob or the poetry of the Hallmark card writer. He's not saying, think of rainbows and unicorns and sunshine and butterflies and have these words crocheted on a hoop above your piano and then you will be, you'll have the peace of God, right? He's also not saying that if you just elevated your minds with great poetry and literature and music, then you would have the peace of God. He's not giving you an excuse to wallow around in the latest cultural garbage in order to mine the beautiful, true, and good out of it. Here's a clue. If in a supposed attempt to obey this command, you find yourself spending as much or more time waiting through whatever is unjust, whatever is defiled, whatever is unlovely, whatever is disreputable, whatever lacks moral excellence, anything unworthy of praise in the eyes of a holy God, probably you're not obeying this command. These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Not saying that poetry and good music aren't good things to think about, but we don't start there. We start with scripture. We start with the example of the Apostle Paul and the example of our pastors and elders. And then we don't let our hearts wander from those things to all the things we're tempted to be afraid of. We persevere in them by the power of Jesus. Because if we don't, we'll be ruled by everything outside of us and everything inside of us. To have the peace of God, we must turn to the God of peace. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see and feel and know your nearness to us. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in you. We pray, Father, that you would hear us when we call to you with our cares and our concerns and that you would teach our hearts to not be anxious but to be content in all things. Forgive us our sins, Father, and help us as we go from here. 
In Jesus' name, amen.